I hope you have your Bibles and that you'll open them up to Mark chapter 12. If you had the opportunity to ask God one question and receive an answer, what question would you ask? Does that sound like deja vu? If you were with us last week, that was the question we started with last week. If you could ask God any question and get an answer, what question would you ask? Last week we were in Mark chapter 12 and we were considering this interaction between the scribe and Jesus and this religious leader, this expert in the law, he came to Jesus with a question. And the question he asked was a good question. Of all the commandments given by God in the law, which is the greatest? What's most important? What's one thing we should focus on out of all the commandments? Which one should we give ourselves to more than any other? An important question. Like we said last week, we shouldn't take for granted that that question was asked, answered, and then it's been preserved for us. Aren't you glad the scribe asked that question and we got the answer? Do you remember what Jesus said, how he answered this question of what is most important of the commands? He said there in verse 29, the most important is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's where we were last week. Jesus telling the scribe what commandment is the greatest. That's what he says, love him with everything you are. Soul, heart, mind, and strength, love him with your all. It's a great question, and I hope that you took what we heard last week and that you've allowed it to roll around in your head this week. That's my prayer for us every week, that something that's said from the Word would stick with us, and that it would change the way we live on Mondays and Thursdays and Saturdays. I won't preach that message again, but let me just remind you of the questions I left you with last week. Are you loving God with all that you are? Do you treasure Him? Do you desire him with every part of who you are? Scribe asked a good question. And if you've been with us, you know that his question was another question in a series of questions. For about four weeks now, we've been walking through this relatively similar structure. Each week, a new religious leader comes to Jesus, asks him a question, not a sincere question, but an insincere question intended to trap him, right? Make him look like a fool. But Jesus was not trapped. He answered their questions. And after this day of fielding questions, the questions ended. And we saw there at the end of our section last week, verse 34, after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The questions come to an end, at least the ones being asked to Jesus. But this morning, we, realize, we see that Jesus now takes the opportunity to ask a question himself. And it's another important question. And I would argue that you know, last week we said, if we could ask God one question, what question would we ask him? Here we have Jesus asking a question. And I would argue this may be the most important question that we are ever asked. And I don't think it's any coincidence that Jesus asks this question at this point. Remember where we are? 
This is the final week before the crucifixion. Jesus knows what's going on. He knows what's coming. Jesus knows that this is the last public opportunity he will have to teach. Soon he'll be with his disciples and we'll consider the teaching he gives to them. But when it comes to public proclamation, here he is in the temple court with crowds around. He takes this opportunity and he asks a question. And I'll tell you on the front end, as we read the passage, it may not jump out to you as significant or you may ask, where's the important question here? But what I want to help you see is that there's questions behind Jesus' question. He's leading them towards something very important. Something that we must take to heart. Something that we cannot ignore. It's a question that if we ask, answer wrongly, we lose everything. We're in Mark 12. Jesus in the temple court. People gathered around. He's been taking questions and now he asks a question of his own. Let's read Mark 12, starting in verse 35. Hope you'll follow along as I read. As Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. It was true and it was written and it is true today and it's for our benefit. So we ask that God will speak to us through his word. Okay, so I told you that Jesus asks here a question of ultimate importance. A question that if we answer wrongly, we lose everything. Now I read the passage. You're thinking, I don't see it. There's an ultimate question here. Well, if you're thinking that, I get it. Because when you read it the first time, when I read it on Monday, start looking forward to this week, what I see first is a technical passage about how first century Jews interpret the scriptures, right? Seems like a technical question, doesn't it? Doesn't seem like a question that should impact us that much. But what I want to help us see this morning is that there is a significant question here and one that's important for us. And if I had to boil it down and tell you the question behind the question, the question is this, who's the Messiah? Or more specifically, is the Messiah the son of David, or is he greater than David? It's a question of identity. Who is the Messiah? But it's not only a question of identity. It's a question of purpose. Because who the Messiah is determines what he does. The question is, who is the Messiah, and what's he coming to accomplish? This is the question Jesus is asking. And I, what I hope you'll see is that that's, that's here. This is the question. Who's the Messiah and what's he coming to accomplish? And what I hope you recognize or what I hope you will see before we end this morning is that this is the question. What do we believe about Christ? Who is he and what's he going to accomplish? 
These are ultimate questions, aren't they? It changes the way we think about Mondays. Who Jesus is and what he's going to accomplish. This changes everything. We must not get this wrong. And I know you, church. You believe right about Christ. You could tell me what the Bible says he's going to accomplish. But the question is, does it change the way we live? How does it affect us? But let's not get to the application just yet. Let's look at the text. There's a lot here, not only in the claim Jesus is making, but he also tells us some things about the scriptures and about how we should read the scriptures and how we should interpret the scriptures. As we jump in, part of understanding these verses is going to be remembering who's involved in the conversation. We need to know some about who they are, what they believe, and where they're coming from. What we see is Jesus is talking to a crowd of Jews, and he starts by asking them about something that the scribes teach. Remember the scribes? These are the experts in the law. These are the ones who teach in the synagogues. So he asks this crowd, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? He says the scribes teach this. The Messiah is the son of David. And by the way, it's not just something the scribes teach. This is what Jews believe. They believe that the Christ, the promised Messiah of God, would be a son or a descendant of David. Now, I probably don't need to tell you much about who David is. David was the greatest king in the history of the nation of Israel. And he's one who God made specific promises to, right? Remember, God told David, through your line will come one who will sit on the throne of Israel forever. You remember the story in 2 Samuel? The prophet Nathan comes to David speaking on behalf of God. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. God, through the prophet Nathan, says to, to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So we see this promise from God to David. It's what we think of as the Davidic covenant. God says, from your line will come one through whom I will do my work. And he says over and over, it'll be a, an everlasting kingdom. A throne that will never end. And this is something that the Jews believed, right? They're right now in slavery, living under the rule of Rome, but they know one day God is sending one who's going to deliver us. He's going to bring us out. He's going to defeat our enemies. He's going to establish us as a nation. He's going to give us a, a king who will set us free. Son of David. The promise is clear, and this isn't the only place we see it. Second Samuel is not the only place it's mentioned. It's throughout the Old Testament. Let me, let me just share a couple of these with you. So I just want you to hear what the Old Testament says about who the Messiah is. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Who's Jesse? This is David's father, right? A branch from its roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. 
Isaiah prophesied that there will be one who will come from the line of Jesse. One who will come in the spirit of God. Jeremiah says it this way. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it shall be called, the Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. I'll give you one more. Ezekiel chapter 34, starting in verse 22. God says through Ezekiel, I will rescue my flock. This is the nation of Israel, right? I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. I will judge between sheep and sheep. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant, David. Now this is generations after David has died, right? He's speaking of a descendant of David. He shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. Now, these are scriptures that the nation of Israel knew well. These are the scriptures that the scribes were teaching in the synagogues. If you've read through the prophets of the Old Testament, you hear this promise. Someone is coming through the line of David. It's throughout. These passages make his identity clear. They're waiting for the descendant of David to come, and they're waiting for what he will accomplish. What, what, what's the promise? We see it out there in Isaiah. We saw it in Jeremiah. We saw it in Ezekiel. One is coming who's going to deliver his people. He's going to lead them well, and the people long for this. Their history has been tumultuous. It's been up and down, in and out of slavery, under the rule of other nations. We are looking for the son of David to come and to change it all. So we see all this, this promise of a king who will make them strong and stable. Let's go back to the question. Jesus, as he taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? What? Isaiah says it. That's how they can say it, right? Jeremiah says it. Ezekiel says it. Does this question make any sense? What's Jesus asking? What do you mean, how can this Christ be the son of David? Well, he's building an argument. He asks the question, and then he takes them to Psalm 110. Look at verse 36. Jesus, quoting Psalm 110, he says, David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So Jesus is taking them to Psalm 110. And by the way, this is a psalm that they knew well. Here's a little Bible trivia for you. There's no other chapter in all the Old Testament that's quoted more in the New Testament than Psalm 110. Okay, so if that comes up on Bible trivia night, which passage is quoted the most from the Old Testament in the New Testament? It's Psalm 110. Now, there's some direct quotes, some allusions. It can be suggested there's no less than 30 times in the New Testament when Psalm 110 is referred to. What this tells us is this is a psalm that was well known. So Jesus isn't taking them to some obscure text that they never heard trying to trick them. 
No, he's taking them to one they knew and proclaimed, one they sang together. Before we look at the quotation, notice how Jesus introduces it. You see what he says? He doesn't say, oh, back in Psalm 110. No, he says, David himself and the Holy Spirit declares. Have you ever wondered why we believe the Old Testament is the word of God? Why we believe the Old Testament has authority? Well, in large part, we believe in the authority of the Old Testament because Jesus believed in the authority of the Old Testament. So we believe in Jesus. We believe that he's God. So when God says, that's my word, we believe him. And he says that here. He says there's two things in that introduction. He says, David wrote it, but he wrote it in the Holy Spirit. And this is what we believe about all the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It was written down by men, but it was written by them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is why we make a big deal about the Bible. We believe it's God's word. Peter describes the process in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Peter says, knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but, God, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I'm glad Peter wrote that. He describes for us how we get the Scriptures. He says, men wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that's the process I believe Jesus is referring to when he says, David himself, it's important that David wrote this. That's important for Jesus' argument here. David wrote by the Holy Spirit these things. Now, I don't want to move past this too quickly. We should take time when we come across a passage like this to consider the weight of the scriptures. Why do I spend so much time every week making sure that I understand it rightly? Why is it important to me that I tell you what the Bible actually says? It's because it's the word of God. There's not much else I have to say. There's nothing else I could call you here to say that's of any value other than the word of God. So this is our commitment that whether it's me or anyone else standing in this pulpit, we will proclaim the word of God. Why? Because it's the word of God. See, we believe that men wrote it down, but they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so what we have is God's very word for us. It's been preserved for us. And Psalm 10 is included in that. Jesus says Psalm 10 was written by David in the Holy Spirit. Here's what David wrote, and here's what Jesus wants them to consider. David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, we don't have time this morning for a full exposition of Psalm 110. Mark that down. You should read Psalm 110 this week. If you have a study Bible, you should read the notes. Familiarize yourself with Psalm 110. It's, do you know it's the most quoted passage of Scripture? from the Old Testament and the New Testament. A little Bible trivia for you. You're, you're going to remember now, won't you? What do we know about Psalm 110? Well, we've, we've seen here, David is the human author. It's also a prophetic psalm. He's writing about the future. And as 
David writes Psalm 110, he's writing about that one whom God had promised would come through his line. Okay? So David has already received this promise from God. One will come through your line. He will deliver the people of Israel. David is writing prophetically about that one, that promised son, the one we read about in Samuel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And if you read the whole of the psalm, you'll see it's a prophecy that's about victory and authority of this coming king. And it shouldn't surprise us that the people of Israel loved this psalm. They longed for deliverance. They longed for salvation. This was a psalm that they would sing together. The same way we come together and we sing about the second coming of Christ. They would sing Psalm 110 and say, there's a king coming. Right? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So what's being said here and how does it relate to Jesus' first question? Well, if we're going to understand it, first we need to know that our English translation doesn't serve us very well. Now, if you are looking in the Gospel of Mark, you see the Lord said to my Lord, and they look the same. If you go back to Psalm 110, most likely in your translation, that first Lord will be spelled in all caps. Lord, written in all caps in our English translations, is a hint to us, it's a pointer to us, this is the proper name of God. Okay, this is Yahweh. So when you read that Lord in all caps, just say in your head, Yahweh, God, the Lord. But the second one, if you're in Psalm 110, the first one's in all caps, the second one's not. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, and in Greek it's the word Adonai, means sovereign one. Sometimes it's used to refer to God. God is the sovereign Lord. It could also be used to refer to an earthly king, one who has great power and great authority. A little bit in the weeds here. It's important. So David is the writer. David says that God says to my Lord. He says he'll be exalted to God's right hand and he'll put all enemies under his rule. God says to this king, this one who David calls my Lord, you're going to sit at my right hand. I'm going to put all your enemies under your feet. Incredible promises. We're going to come back to the promises. But for now, let's just consider what Jesus is trying to say. Let's not miss the big idea. What is, how does he start? The scribes teach that the Messiah will be the son of David. Then Jesus says, David says... Of the one who will come, the Messiah, he calls him my Lord. Maybe you don't see a problem with that. It's because you're not a first century Jew. Because first century Jews think like this. A son is never greater than the father. It may be appropriate for a son to call the father Lord, but the, Lord would never, or the father would never call the son Lord. Any greatness that a son has comes because he's in the lineage of the father. The father is greater, the son comes after him, any greatness he has is inherited. It wouldn't make sense in their culture for a father to call a son or a descendant Lord. So here's the question. The scribes say that David will have a son 
The Messiah will be David's son. Why then does David himself say, of the Messiah, my Lord? Creates a question. Either Psalm 110 isn't about the son of David, he's writing about someone else, or the son of David is more than a physical heir to the throne. How is it possible that David referred to his own son with his on, this title of honor and superiority? This is what Jesus is pushing them to consider. That what they believed about the Messiah wasn't necessarily wrong, but is incomplete. I think we've established, we've agreed, the Messiah is the son of David, right? Isn't that what Ezekiel said and Jeremiah said, Isaiah said? They're not wrong. But they were waiting simply for a human descendant to the throne of David, a man who would come and fulfill the promises of God to the nation of Israel. And we understand how they got there. They're not wrong. They just don't understand fully. See, the promise of God was bigger than that a physical descendant of David would lead a nation. It's bigger than that. The promise of God was that one was coming through the line of David who would be greater than David. One who would come through the line of David who would be David's Lord. One would come through the line of David who would not only be the son of David, but who would in fact be the son of God. I told you it's a question of identity and purpose. They didn't fully understand the identity of the Messiah. Therefore, they didn't fully understand what he would accomplish. They were waiting for a king who would defeat their enemies. The Messiah came to do far more than that. The, the Messiah didn't come simply to save a people from enemy nations. He came to save people from sin and death. I think this is significant. He didn't come simply to carry forward the earthly kingdom of Israel. He came to establish an eternal kingdom. We're in the weeds this morning, aren't we? Let's step back. Let's get a, try to keep the big idea, okay? Here's Jesus on the Tuesday before he goes to the cross. And Jesus was not looking to enter into a petty debate. Jesus is pushing this crowd to think carefully about what they believe about the one whom God has promised. So he asks them, is the Christ the son of David or is he greater than David? What's the answer, church? The answer is both, isn't it? He is the son of David. He is a descendant of David. We have the records, the genealogy. Matthew 1 tells us Jesus is the descendant of David. Remember the Sunday, just two days before this, when he's coming into Jerusalem and they sing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes, the son of David. He is the son of David, but he's also David's Lord. And while the scribes who Jesus was pointing to probably would not have been able to put all this together at the time, here's what Jesus is pushing them to see. They had underestimated who the Messiah was. They had underestimated what he would accomplish. And as a result, they had missed the real plan of God, that God was sending a Savior, not only to save them from their enemies, to save them from their sins, who would be the great and final sacrifice, who would be the final priest and the eternal king. They were waiting for the Messiah, but they underestimated who he was. 
And here's my fear for us. Even though we know who the Messiah is, but that we could underestimate what he came to accomplish. Right? Here's the temptation for us. Some of you, even before I started this, you could have walked me through Psalm 110. You could have told me the difference between Lord and Lord, and you understand the argument of Christ. But the question is, do we really believe that he came to set us free from our sins? Because we still struggle with temptation, don't we? And sometimes we convince ourselves we cannot overcome it. What have we done? We've underestimated the work of Christ and what he's come to accomplish. We fear the future because we underestimate his control and his power and his sovereignty. In many ways, we're guilty of the same thing the scribes were guilty of, underestimating the Christ. They were waiting for a national hero, but God was sending a savior. Of course, this is Jesus, and this is who he declared himself to be. Up to this point, Mark, several times, he's been referred to as the son of David. He never declined, right? And this is significant. People say Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus believed that the one who would be the son of David, the one that God had promised, was, in fact, the son of God. And when they called him the son of David, he accepted that title. Jesus came, the son of David, the son of God, and he proved, in fact, that he is that one by his resurrection. Jesus taught it, and the disciples believed it. Listen to Acts chapter 2. This is one of those passages that quotes Psalm 110. This is the day of Pentecost. Peter's preaching this great message. He says this. This Jesus, verse 32, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. See, Peter knew Psalm 110. He believed that after Jesus left, he was now seated at the right hand of God. Having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Isn't that fun to connect the dots from Psalm 110 to the words of Christ to the words of Peter? What Peter recognized and what Jesus was pushing those in the temple courts to recognize was they had underestimated the greatness of the Messiah. Yes, he is the son of David. He's also the long-awaited king. And his throne is eternal. And all enemies will be put under his feet. The Jews knew this verse, but they had underestimated the implications of it. Can I say again, there are many verses you know, but you have underestimated the implications of them. Read your Bible, eyes wide open. This is true. When God said through David, I will take this one and he will sit at my right hand, that wasn't a metaphor, it wasn't an illusion, it was real. When he said, I will put all your enemies under your feet, that is real. Jesus stood in front of them, the one who would be exalted, the one who would subdue all enemies, and they didn't recognize him. But we get the benefit of 
understanding this and seeing the implications. And I won't go to all 30 of the allusions in the New Testament to read them to you, but I do want to read for you the bulk of Hebrews chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, you can flip there. I'm going to skip a couple of verses along the way, but I'm going to read most of Hebrews 1. And as I read, here's what I want you to do. Listen for a couple of things. What does this tell us about Jesus? And how does the writer of Hebrews understand Psalm 110 and who the Messiah actually is? Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Verse 7. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Verse 10. And you, Lord, lay the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. This is speaking of Christ, okay? They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. To which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool? What we see here is that the writer of Hebrews understood the things that the scribes didn't understand. That Jesus, the one who came, was God in flesh. He was far more than the son of David. Because God has said to him, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I will put all things under your feet. Church, this is our hope. That the one who came and died for us now sits at the Father's right hand. He is over all, he controls all, and he is making all things new. Therefore, because he came, because he died, because he rose again, Paul says in Philippians 2, God has highly exalted him bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's Lord. I could keep reading more passages from the New Testament about the exaltation of Christ. Something we don't think about enough. We talk a lot about his birth. We talk a lot about his death. We talk about his resurrection. How often do you consider the exaltation of Christ? This changes everything for us. That Christ is on his throne. He rules over all. This is our hope, church. That God said to Christ, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Here's Jesus in the temple court. All day he's been answering questions from the people who wanted to trap him. He's been answering insincere questions from people who just a few days later would arrest, try, and crucify him. Now, he has an opportunity to speak one last time to them as a crowd. What will he say? 
Well, he takes them to the scriptures and he pushes them to consider what has been revealed. He wants them to see who the Messiah is. He wants them to know the Messiah is greater than they have understood and has come to do more than they have anticipated. He's trying to help them understand his identity. Not only a descendant of David, but David's Lord, God in the flesh, the one who will be exalted. And while they wouldn't understand or accept his teaching, here's something I want us to see. That even after all these people had done to Jesus, what's he doing here? He's trying to help them see the truth. This is a good example for us. If you were standing in front of the mob that would in just a few days kill you, what message would you share with them? Now, full disclosure, he went in the temple and he pronounced their judgment. But now he goes and he helps them to see who the Christ is and what he has really come to accomplish. They tried to trap him. He doesn't try to trap them. He offers them a plan of salvation. He's not trying to prove that he knows the Bible better than they do. He's trying to point them to the truth. That he's Lord, the Son of God, the Savior of all who believe. What are the implications for us? We've already considered this, that we can be tempted to underestimate who Jesus is. What we see here is Jesus declaring and showing from the scriptures that he is, in fact, God in flesh, the Lord of all. What are the implications for us? The first one's probably obvious, but we must ask this question. This is the question we must ask of all people. Do you believe that Jesus is Lord? A simple question, but the way we answer this question is the difference between life and death. It's the difference between mercy and wrath, between hope and hopelessness, between salvation and judgment, between heaven and hell. Do you believe that Jesus is Lord? Maybe as you read the scriptures this week, you'll notice more clearly this reference to Christ as Lord and you'll consider its weight. Paul says in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus came, he proved he is the Lord. He died so that we could be forgiven and all who believe on him will be saved. The first question that we must consider after we, after we hear this declaration of Christ is, have we believed? And right on the heels of that is the follow-up question. If you believe, if you've confessed him as Lord, are you living as if he is? Last week, I hope you left with this question rolling around in your head. Am I loving God with all of myself, with all that I am? Here's the question for this week. 
Am I living as if Jesus is Lord? Filter every part of your week through that question. Am I living right now as if Jesus is Lord? This morning, my fear, what I was struggling with as I, I prepared for this time together is, this seems very academic in some ways as we balance from Psalm 110 to Hebrews to Philippians. But here's the question. All of these passages point us towards this truth, Jesus is Lord. The question is, do we live as if he is? Do we parent as unto the Lord? Do we work as unto the Lord? Do you love your spouse as unto the Lord? Do you use your money as unto the Lord? Do you use your time as unto the Lord? To use Brian's word, let me put this pebble in your shoe. Am I living right now as if Jesus is Lord? You remember what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3? I'm just slipping in these references, these 30 references. I'm slipping them in here and there. Colossians chapter 3. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated. Seated at the right hand of God. We need to think about the exaltation of Christ more. He's Lord. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Paul's pushing us. He's saying, Jesus came, but now he's at the right hand of the Father. He's Lord over all. Live as if he's Lord. Remember, he's coming again. We will see him. We will be with him forever. And you can trust him today. If there's anything that can give us hope for dark days, it's this. Jesus is Lord. We know the one who is overall, who will never be defeated. Trust him. Do you know, have you confessed that Jesus is Lord? If so, are you living as if he is? Third, do you proclaim him as Lord? I'll say it again, we can come here and we can be really skilled at understanding prophecy and how it's fulfilled. You can maybe take me from the words of Jesus to Psalm 110 to Peter and to Paul and you can, you can just take that thread all over the place and you can explain the ins and outs and I think God is honored in that. But the more we know about Christ, the more we should desire to tell others about him. We should rejoice that he's coming again and we should be mindful of wanting to invite others to recognize him for who he is. I think that's what Jesus is doing here in the temple courts just days before his crucifixion. He wants them to know and he knows at this point if he just stands up and says, this is who I am, they're just gonna kill him. So what does he do? He takes them to the scriptures that they know and love and he tries to help them see. Do we have the heart of Christ? to help others see who he is. One of the things we see in Psalm 110 is that Jesus is exalted and one day God will put all his enemies under his feet. All those enemies include anyone who does not confess him as Lord. Think about that. 
we have the opportunity to take people, to introduce them to Christ, allow God to do his work in them so that they will be exalted with Christ instead of being subdued underneath his feet. This is the work of the gospel that we have been called to proclaim. Jesus is Lord and all who call on his name will be saved. And this proclamation should not feel like a burden. It should be a joy for us to tell others of Christ and of his lordship and all that's in store for those who love him. Jesus stood in front of this crowd in the temple. Think about who was there. These are people who had the scriptures but didn't understand them. They had the Messiah in front of him, but they did not recognize him. May we not be like them. Those who have the scriptures but don't understand them. Who see Jesus but don't really believe. Let's not miss what he's saying to us this morning. My hope is this week this will ring in your ears. Jesus is Lord. And I pray that it will change you, that it will move you towards obedience, motivate your evangelism, lead you to worship, strengthen you in times of temptation, and give you hope in times of doubt. The fact that Jesus is Lord should change us. Jesus is Lord. What does that mean? It means that you can be saved and the Spirit of God lives in you. As we close, I want to take you to Ephesians 1. It's a prayer offered by Paul for the church at Ephesus. At the end of this prayer, he talks about the position Christ is in, seated at the right hand of God. And everything he says at the top of the prayer is possible because of who Christ is and where he is. Consider this, Ephesians 1, as we close. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having your hearts, eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards you who believe according to the working of his great might? That same great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus is Lord. His spirit lives in us so we can go in hope. 